Welcome to season two of Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian American and adopted through the sharing of adopted stories. I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. And this week we are joined by fellow Korean adoptee, Brandy Ebersole. Brandy is a writer for Kinder Nico, a community that brings together all members of the adoption triad. She's also a mentor, consultant, and photographer for adoptees and adoptive families. Welcome, Brandy. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing great. How's everything on the East Coast? It's great. It's so hot, which is the way I like it in the summer anyways. I'm enjoying my days and by the water and the pool and being cool. Oh, I miss the beach. I miss the, the coast, especially where you are. Yeah, it is a particular time. I mean, the water is not warm. Don't get me wrong, but we get in it anyway. <laughs> So we were just discussing where you live, and I was just sitting back and uh, listening to both of you talk. It sounds like you both have connections to a lot of different areas in, the, in that space. Yeah, I am currently um, based in New England um, on the North Shore of Boston. And so that means that I can smell the ocean from my house sometimes, which is really nice. Um, I live in a small town called Beverly. And... To my surprise, um, your co-host here also lived not far. We probably passed each other in a grocery store um, for a, <laughs> a long season of her life. So, yeah, it is a special place, um, particularly in the summer. It's not my favorite place in winter, but it's okay. We, we get through those months. <laughs> yeah, the winter, I feel like, makes that's what makes the New Englanders, like the hardy stock, I feel like, is the months of November through March. <laughs> Sometimes April. This year it was only yeah. April. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You're always wearing extra coats. And I think, too, I always joke that I was um, born in Jeju-do Island in Korea. And I always joke that I'm an islander. So in the winter, I'm always cold. So I always have, like, an extra layer of long johns underneath my coats, um, sometimes two coats. I got got my wool socks like I'm I'm in I'm on my island somewhere it's just under all the layers of clothes so yeah (laughs) hey do what you got to do exactly okay so now I'm interested what do you all do in the winter because in Wisconsin we have um, a little bit of skiing there's some snowmobiling um, obviously other winter sports but is there anything you all do up on the east coast over there shovel snow (laughs) (laughs) that is very true yeah same things I think I don't love them but I make myself get out in the cold because it's good for me so this year I like did like a challenge with some two of my friends where we walked outside every day a mile for the month of January because and I would just bundle myself up and like put my book on tape on and look like a crazy person and like walk outside in the snow or whatever was happening um, because I knew the fresh air was better for me than staying inside. Obviously. Yeah. I do have to say, though, like, especially in that part of New England, especially during the holiday time, it's just so pretty because you have all these quaint little, you know, seaside New England towns and like the, the twinkly lights are up and everything is kind of decked out. And it's just such a nice kind of like homey, comforting feeling. Um, But it's also really nice to look at all of that from inside your warm house, outside your window, and not necessarily need to go 
walk outside to experience it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, the quintessential New England is definitely where I live. So we are experiencing that in all ways. But um, I am a beach girl, so it's a little hard in those months, but that's okay. And you said you had a, a little bit of connection to Colorado, which uh, which Shanae and I are both living in at, at the moment, trying to get your husband out here too. What's, uh, what things are you going to try to do if you can get yourself out over here? Um, we like hiking. So I feel like we would have fun seeing all the big sites. And um, I don't know. I just remember from my time traveling there that I feel like the air was like crisp and like, it's just like different. Like it, it's not dry like it is in you know, I don't know, Arizona. Um, and I, yeah, we just love like being outside and doing stuff outside and we do enjoy skiing. I hear that you guys have better snow than we do here. So I probably would like that. I actually really do not enjoy skiing in New England because it's always icy. It feels like I grew up in upstate New York. Um, so I grew up in Rochester, New York and skiing there was, um, lake effect snow. So it was like a little bit more, uh, you know, carve my way down the hill versus like, wearing a helmet making sure I'm not dying down the hill <laughs> yeah I can yeah. attest that like because I'm not my husband's a really good skier um I am not but in New England I'm like a terrible skier but in Colorado I'm at least like an intermediate skier okay and nothing about yeah. me changes so it is it is a little bit better out here for sure it's comforting to know you have like a couple feet of like actual powder and not just ice underneath you <laughs> exactly exactly there have been a couple times where i'm like am i gonna die today or am i gonna <laughs> so yeah yeah exactly so brandy why don't you share a little bit about yourself your origin story kind of what you're doing in life right now so i am a korean adoptee as i said a little bit in our intro i was adopted um and born in Jeju-do island but then i was brought to a foster family in Seoul and waited for my parents. I had some medical um, issues that kind of delayed my journey to America. And so I was six months old when I made that um, big voyage, however. And I always like to say that I was on a plane that was probably very loud because it was full of other children that were also coming. Um, I was in um, JFK with, I think... 10 to 12 other Korean adoptees. Um, and each of us were escorted by different women, which was really cool. Um, and then I grew up in upstate New York, like I said, in Rochester. I have a white adoptive family and I have one brother who is biological to my parents. So he's younger than I am. So I am very much the first child in terms of I'm the achiever I am the independent one. Not that he's not independent, but it's just like my personality lends itself to be that way. But him and I have a very sweet relationship in these adult days where we seem to understand each other in a way that only the two of us kind of do, being that we grew up in the same home and kind of partake in the same funny, weird things that we do. My town was very, very small. It was this one stoplight town outside of Rochester. But to my surprise, there were actually four other Korean adoptee girls that I actually grew up with who were in my class. And that wow. lent itself to have a very interesting dynamic. One of them and I particularly got really close. There was originally five. And then one of us 
got really close and she actually moved away to Texas, but her and I still kind of keep up. And then the other four of us, we never really talked about being adopted, but we all knew that we were, and we all knew we were like Korean. And I don't know, it was one of those things where we, um, there was a culture camp that was in our town that we all attended. So we had all these like touch points, but I think as teenagers, we didn't know how to communicate that in a way that was productive, um, other than kind of feeding into what the culture wanted us to do. Um, and so looking back now, I see so many of the ways that we could have served each other better. And we've reached out as adults and said that to one another, which is kind of funny. But yeah, so that is always interesting to me. But my town was really, really small. Like I said, one stop light. These adoptees made up probably the like 50% of the diversity in my school, my high school, um, which is also a funny scenario. Um, now living in a big city, much bigger city than I grew up in. And I always was one of those kids that like knew I had places to go and things to do. And I think innately I had this drive to make peace with my adoptedness. I think I was always trying to do it in a roundabout way, um, whether that was through um, my spirituality in terms of I grew up in a Christian home. So there was pieces of that that um, lent itself to, I don't know if I would say it wasn't always the healthiest, um, but it also was privy to the time that I and who I was and developmentally where I was at. I think that there was some really key touch points that I was able to have because of my religious background in that I had the opportunity to serve at an orphanage a couple times. And um, the experience of doing that definitely lent itself to allow the themes that were kind of like ruminating inside of me for so long to be in front of my face instead of internally. And at one point, I spent a summer post my first year of college living at one for three months. And I think during that time was when it really all kind of broke open for me in this big way where I had to make peace with, and maybe not even make peace, I had to reckon with the fact that there was so much of my story that was untold and um, so much of me that I didn't know. And I... I struggled with my mental health during that season. Um, I was in therapy pretty um, heavily and found my way out through reading and writing and um, going back to college and studying sociology. So it kind of became my passion to understand the culture around me. Um, And my, I believe that my making peace was this drive to do something in adoption that was going to make a difference. And I had lofty ideas and they were rooted in the religious experience that I had in terms of like doing orphan care. There was a big savior complex that I had to undo and unwind um, in my late teen years. But thankfully, my therapist stood by me and like we got through it all. Um, I would love to like read his notes on my brain and all the things that I probably said in my like 18 to 19 to 20 years. But I mean, you know, he got us through. And um, so, yeah, I guess it lended to 
I'm getting to the point where I am now in a lot of ways. I had a great couple years collegially, like wrapping my brain around this part of myself that I didn't know I could study. My body knew that it wanted to study it, but it didn't know how. And so that was like a really great couple years. And then I met my now partner and husband, which was really cool. And at the same time, I'm an extremely creative person and kind of a right brain. And so there was this part of me that was very academic, but also found so much joy and freedom in like art and what that meant and expressing myself and seeing things and I don't know, just kind of capturing things the way they were. So all that to be said, I obviously fell for my husband because he is a artist to the core. I think I'm more like, I like to say like, I'm like, if there was like a a yin and yang, I'm like both sides, black and white of an artist or like an artist and academic. He's just like all the colors of the rainbow, like (laughs) (laughs) kind of guy. And so, um, yeah, we had a wonderful like end of my I was we actually got together after I had um, been out of college and doing some teach I was at that point a teacher and we fell for each other which was great and fun and I think through our through our relationship I really learned to take risks as an artist and so I began to take photographs and write for fun not just for a grade and Mm -hmm. It was one of those times that I didn't know I needed somebody to push me to do that. I was an achiever. I was like the stereotypical adoptee that I wanted to please and to achieve for my worth and my merit. And no one imposed any of that on me, but it was my trauma playing itself out in a very particular way. And I see it so clearly because I still struggle with it all the time. But all that to be said, fast forward, we get married and... I think one of the biggest things that he had to know walking into my marriage was that I was adopted and I didn't exactly know what that meant at that time. We were young. I was like, I don't know, like 25. And I was just felt like I was just cracking that all open. I had come to grips with the fact that every like life transition brought about this like unearthing of the same trauma in a new way. And I wanted him to know that, like, when I left for college, it was an issue. I mean, even like backward, backward. When I went from elementary school to middle school, it was an issue. When I went from college, you know, high school to college, when I was currently in the transition of college out, like, out of into the adult life, I felt like there, it was always this, like, elephant in the room that I was grappling with that played into everything that I was doing. It is so much the lens in which I perceive the world that the further that I got out from the ties that I had, the more I realized I had ties in so many other places, right? Um, I think I was very attached to my parents. They did a great job in a lot of ways to foster an environment for me to grow and to be held and loved. But I think as I exited that, I just realized I was attached in so many other ways, in so many other places. So anyways, so he was like, okay, well, I guess I'm along for the ride. Thankfully, he had grown up in Brazil. And so in a lot of ways, he is, has experienced, even though he is, he's white, he's white, his parents are Dutch, they're from 
his whole family's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, but he, his parents were missionaries in Brazil. And so I think in a lot of ways, there was this like tie to each other because there was this kind of knowing of an experience in which we couldn't put our finger on. We both had experienced the same thing in a different way. I experienced it my whole life every day. He experienced it a season when he came home from speaking a different language, living in a different place, um, that kind of thing. It was nuanced to my experience that was every day and that was not for his. But all that to be said, his empathy and his love for me, I felt safe and I knew that it was like a good partnership. So I got married and then we started talking about building our family. And so when we did that, I can honestly say that, again, the people that we were then are still true today in a lot of ways, but we knew we wanted to start our family via adoption. And I know that there was a part of me that I thought that that was a deeper connection to myself than biological pregnancy. And so off we went and determined as ever. Um, But what was so cool about that experience and what has been such a gift to me was its ability to give legs and life to all of these characters in this story that I probably will never be privy to have answer to for myself. And I work hard still in therapy to keep those things separated. However, Learning and becoming family with a birth mother is really different than having her be um, like a fantasy in my mind. Getting to see her emotions and getting to see birth fathers' emotions and biological families that people look like, I think are a really beautiful ground for my family because we understand that we're not meant to be adopted. We're not meant to like... Our lives were not created to fulfill some sort of need for my husband and I, my kids, my Mm -hmm. kids' lives were not, and my life was not created to fill some need for my parents, but that our families can expand and be connected in these ways. And that, that at different times, those connections can feel full of grief and loss and sorrow, but other times those connections can feel full and um, life-giving in a way that maybe creates a bridge over the broken river that will always flow um, as, as I like to kind of think about it. So, yeah, so we, all the adoption classes, and it was really funny because I felt like I was in them, but I was teaching them at some point. <laughs> um, and I was even asked to come back and speak at the one that we went to a couple of times because I obviously had a lot to say. So, um, yeah, and we did adopt a little girl, and she's amazing, and um, her birth parents are amazing, and her birth parents find it to be so fascinating because her birth mother is also adopted as well, and she find that that's like a public news. And so, yeah, I think that there is a culture there that – we have a particular understanding that is different than the average adoption, I guess. But that means that our little spitfire of our daughter that we have is definitely going to not make it unknown of all the things that she's learning through all of us. So it's been fun. And then um, I have we have a biological son, and he his whole 
coming to us has also been like such a reckoning in and of itself as a, an adoptee. I feel like that has been a really particularly hard and special relationship. And then we are still currently foster parents and we had a little boy that came to stay with us and he just through circumstances and different things never um, was able to reunify. However, we have um, openness with his family too. And he was adopted by us three years ago, I think now, which is kind of crazy to think about. And then I'm I'm expecting in the fall again. So that has brought about all of the congratulations again. Yeah. And so then we have kids and family and then I'm an, like I said, I am an adoptee advocate and I choose to use my platform for writing and kind of just telling the world a little bit about what it's like from my view. And then um, I also own a business and, you know, I work. So my life is very full. I was going to say, it sounds like you're not doing anything right now. It sounds like I, you're no, I'm really yeah, what have you been up to lately? <laughs> I'm pretty much all the time, but um, I think that there is a part of that that I am thankful for the summer and the beach because that's like where I find rest. Or having conversations like this are very cathartic to me. So yeah, that's me in a little bit of a nutshell. I'm curious to know because with your adopting of your daughter um, that you – chose the route to go domestic so you can be, you know, it sounds like you have an open adoption, you are in contact or were in contact with her birth mom and her birth father. Was there a reason that you wanted to go that route versus an adoption like your own? Yeah, we are still very much in contact with her biological parents. We try to see them at least yearly, if not more. And I... Yeah, I don't I don't like being internationally adopted. I don't like that I have never been able to step foot in the country that I was born in. I mean, we had plans to go, but COVID definitely um, wreaked havoc on all of that right now. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have never, I don't, I grieve the language loss and my name. And just, I think that there are so many pieces of it that, international adoption does not lend itself to give those pieces as easily. I have yet to meet a family that is able to maintain openness via transnational in a way that is sustaining and can help really create an identity for a child. I knew financially that I did not, as an artist, as a photographer, that we were not headed down a road of um, being able to travel back and forth from some country in Africa or something. And I also just, I think through my research had had understood so much that there is also such a degree of, not that there isn't in the States, but the, the, the cultural differences create such an easy space for unethical practices. And um, I just was not about to in any way put my foot in that at all. Um, Yeah, that was really it. I think as I have grown, um, honestly, I don't even think private adoption is the route to go anymore. Um, I am, as I have exposed myself and have been privy to foster care and have come out of my own fog, I do think families are meant to be, stay together. Family preservation should always be at the top of the list. And I just think that when money is involved, that's never going to be the case. So. 
that is why we lend ourselves to do foster care in hopes to kind of be a part of that change. Definitely. Brandy, you mentioned you had a few um, friends that are also adopted when you were growing up. I've actually been connecting to some of my friends that I grew up with that were also adopted from Korea Mm -hmm. very recently. um, And the gap between us talking has been decades. And I, I think similar stories where we didn't really talk about each other's adoption, although we knew at the time that we were adopted. But the conversations have been really profound, very interesting now that we're all adults. And we kind of look back on those things where we knew, you know, we were, we were you know, adopted, but didn't really recognize that and had these similar experiences. As you connect to your friend and other friends now, what do you all talk about? Do you have any uh, interesting stories or any, any eye-opening things that happened that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I can think of one of the friends in particular that she gave me the honor of being vulnerable with me during her reunification with her biological mother. And there has been a lot of, I think, grief and just kind of unknown and how that relationship will look as time moves on. I think she's amazing and brave and um, just really went for it. But I think that watching her be able to navigate that has been really cool. My other high school friends that I have had and I have not necessarily reconnected on the adoption piece. It was like on funny things like I was promoting how Korea, I don't know if you guys took advantage of this, sent masks during COVID to adoptees here in the States. And mm. um, it was really cool, like that they were doing it in different big cities. And so I was trying to connect them because their majority of them are still in Rochester to those masks. And it was like, just this, like, we were all in such a vulnerable time, right? In 2020. And it was such a beautiful space to connect upon. So yeah, I don't, and then we talked about our, our kids and our families and it was very light. I do to my Again, it's a gift to myself, I think, um, or like a gift, I don't know, from God or the world that I do have adult adoptees that I do consider some of my closest friends. And I think some of the things that we're able to share is that there's that little tick, right? That to every kind of situation, there's that little like, oh, is that because I'm adopted? And to have somebody say back to you, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. It's so nice. And so particularly during COVID, this group of friends and I um, were able to say that to each other over and over again. And I just think that that was so nice to not feel isolated in a time where we were really isolated in our homes. And so, yeah. And just to say too, you know, I think there's a grief that adoptees have and to share that with a friend is really different. You can share it with a spouse but they are there to support you or you can share it with a partner or you can share it with a parent. But when someone's walking through it too, it, it's just really different. And so, um, and mm-hmm. they were so kind, particularly after the shooting in, in Georgia, um, that was poignant point, like in pointing Koreans and Asian women, they sent me this like beautiful care package of all these like Korean things and just saw me in my moment. And it was really like really, really special. So if there's anybody listening to this podcast, they need to make adoption, adoptee friends because they think that it forms your identity in a way that is so rich and it just it seeds the soil in a way that you didn't know you needed to grow. 
Definitely. Absolutely. Do you know, because you had said that you and your classmates didn't necessarily talk about the fact that you were all adoptees, but do you know if the parents talked to each other about the fact that they had all adopted these babies from Korea? I know that the, like, there was one family that our, my family got close to particularly, and I know that the mom and my mom did share, but it's interesting because we both had some health issues as children, and so I do think it was easier for them to talk about those than it was to talk about our adoption experience. So then fast forward to me parenting to adoptees, I am always quick to talk about all that well, like, not, I'm not to divulge my children's story by any means, but it is, and I don't know if it's particularly because my identity lends itself in to be in both camps, as I joked before when we were chatting, that I'm a double negative, um, adoptee and adopt parent, but I do find my incessant need to kind of create a space for myself to be able to air in a safe place some of the like adoptee, like, you know, it's nice to have other friends that have birth parents that send Christmas gifts or mm-hmm. birthday gifts, you know, like, I don't know. It's just like, it's nice to be able to just be like, oh yeah, like you can be obsessed with your kid the way it looks because it has nothing to do with you. Like, I don't know, just like <laughs> any of that funny stuff to kind of keep it light because parenting is really hard no matter what you're doing. So I don't know. I should ask my mom. I don't know if they about it. <laughs> I was just curious because we had one of our other guests a couple weeks ago was Benny's classmate and friend from high school. And they were saying the same thing. Like, yeah, we, we were friends and we had all these deep emotional talks, but we never talked about the fact that we were both adopted. And they were asking like, did my parents talk to your parents? I don't think so. Like, should it have occurred yeah. to them to talk to each other? <laughs> like, it just seems like yeah. such a common thread, especially for our guests this season. Um mm-hmm that to now hear you say that as well. I was like, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I just think that there was like a different generation of parenting then, right? I get, I, yeah. I think that it, it, it's tied into, not to their fault, but the culture of kind of, if it's not a problem, let's not make it a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Or if they're not talking about it, then they're good. You know, I, I, I don't know, that whole like the, the colorblind problem that I think a lot of us grew up in is that. And I and I and I think there have been seasons that I have found myself to be angry about that, but I also can't there's a part of me that can't be angry as well because they weren't taught. And that's mm-hmm. where I think the advocacy piece comes in. And that agencies if adoption's not going away, right? And if agencies are gonna continue to produce, then we need a better product because there's a sea of us in our mid to late, you know, like in our thirties or whatever that are, are saying this to them. Mm-hmm. Are they listening? I don't even know. And that's what's terrifying sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said earlier, once money gets involved, it gets real scary real quick. Yes. Brandy, you said you grew up in a small town, one stoplight. Did you have to travel outside of your town to go to shopping malls, to go to fancy restaurants? What kind of um, things did you do in your hometown? It's a farm town. <laughs> yes, same here. I'm New York. You drive in and it smells like, like cows live there. Um, and it's gotten more gentrified. You know, like I think now 10 minutes up the road, they have a Target, which is a big deal for 
that would have been a big deal for me if I was in high school. Um, that would have yes. changed my life in a big way. Um, but I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We got into trouble, if anything. I mean, we didn't. We had fun too. We, I don't know. We would, we played sports. I was like, I was one of those kids that was an overachiever. If I mean, some of that is still lingering. Um, and so I was just involved in everything from music to student body council to running track to playing lacrosse to, I don't know, being social. So getting good grades, being on APs. Like I was just like overrun, but I had so much fun. And that's what matters. And so we had a lot of fun. I look back at all of it. I'm like, it was actually easier than what these kids are dealing with now because there was no phone. Nobody was like bullying each other. It was like, you know, if we were bullying each other, it was like in the face, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we had a lot of fun. Did you have a local diner that you would hang out at by any chance? I feel like, cause I also grew up in a small town and it was like Walmart and like the Denny's <laughs> were the only we were open until like 2 a.m. when we were like late high school, college, if we wanted to go out and do something. So, yeah, I mean, actually, crazy enough. So, we didn't have a diner, but Wegmans, people who are upstate New York would know what this is. It's like this mega grocery store. It is open 24 7. So, we would hang out at Wegmans. <laughs> we thought about Wegmans. I miss Wegmans so much. It's so ridiculous. I mean, we have pictures, my girlfriends and I, of us eating like pints of ice cream outside of Wegmans and like, I don't know, making, wreaking havoc in Wegmans, pushing each other in carts. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Like, this was our place. Brady, when I think about your family and your kids, you, I mean, completely span all of the different ways that a family can come together under your one roof. And I'm really curious how you, as a mom and as an adoptee, really foster just like a sensitivity and a grace for your kids, for themselves, for each other, because everybody comes from a different situation and everybody's sort of dealing with their own things. And I know that they're they're tiny humans right now, but those are crucial years. So I'm curious, you know, how do you approach parenting? I think at the top of my list is always like honesty, right? And freedom to express ourselves. So I think that it is actually such a, a gift. And I hope they see it as a gift to be players in all the stories, right? I, I don't think that each story is a monolith of itself. I think that they have become meshed into each other, right? So my biological son, for instance, will call me his birth mom, which is always an interesting, I mean, and I think he's beginning to know that it's actually kind of like a sensitive thing and we shouldn't, you know, joke about <laughs> it. And it wasn't, and he is like um, the most tender soul. So it's not like out of militia. He's five. There's right. no, and he's technically not wrong. He's not wrong. I'm his birth mother. Um, and, but I think that there is a part of being able to also carry some of those narratives in my own identity and not shying away from sharing them with them has been an asset to them. So for instance, after 2020 or during 2020, I would say, I wouldn't even say after during 2020, it became so apparent that there was so much that needed to be said, right? And my kids were little then, and they're still little, but that my partner and I decided particularly in that time that we were not going to 
shy away from any of it because we didn't want them to feel like they missed out on something if we could keep it cognitively at their level. And we did. And so I think that there was this reckoning for all parties to kind of see one another for who they were. There wasn't one of us that was untouched racially during that time, right? I have a Latino, a Black child, and an Asian child living in my home, and then my husband being white and myself being obviously Asian. So it was so interesting during the heat of all of the protests and all the things that we were bringing our kids to, how they were able to say at different points, well, this one's for you or this one's for you, or this one's for you. And I think there was a part of that as a parent that was so heartbreaking, but also so invigorating because I didn't see myself fully until I was out of my parents' home. I think there is an incessant need as a person who was raised by white people that I wanted to be white. And I I don't think 2020 gave my kids or myself the choice to not be ourselves. And so I, I don't know, I, I guess that's my approach is that like, I want them to fully be themselves. I think they all know the narratives that are at play. They all know about grief and trauma and we continue to foster. So, you know, reunification and I think it's giving them a safe place to ask questions is also a big one for us. So yeah, I guess those would be my three things, you know, like always being honest giving them space to fully be themselves and always in, to ask questions. It sounds like they're very, I don't want to use the word lucky, but they're very fortunate, I think, to have the experience that they're having. It's just such a rich experience and like what a way to grow up and to be able to, at such a young age, have that awareness and that sensitivity and that confidence too. Yeah. And I'm, and I, you know, I know, and maybe they'll listen to this someday, that, that there will be parts of it that they won't like. And mm-hmm. I can't, protect them from that. I think that's another thing that I'm not going to, I can't protect them from the world and I can't protect them from the world in the way that it seeps into our home. So Brandy, we talked about how busy you are. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do and uh, what you're passionate about? Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of different things. So my husband and I own a photography business and I feel like that has lent itself to also leak into the adoption world a little bit. Um, And for a while we did adoptions, like we we took photographs at people's adoption ceremonies or different court dates and stuff until I began to realize that was not something I enjoyed doing at all. Um, It was a time where these clients would overshare their children's stories with me. It was traumatizing to me to see over and over again, this celebration of something that I find to be so emotional for myself. And so I have completely stopped taking photographs at adoption ceremonies, and my husband has as well. And I have shifted any sort of photo work that I do with adoptees to be about adoptees, about their reunifications with their parents, I've done a little work with our local foster care agencies in giving their foster youth the chance to learn about photography and to spend time with me, which has been really fun. So yeah, that part of our art is still alive, but it's storytelling the narrative that I think is um, more important and not just a kind of one-stop shop. 
So I run a business in that sense. We do corporate work and weddings and families and all sorts of stuff. But then I also write for Kindred and Co and other platforms about being an adoptee and raising adoptive kids and all sorts of things and use that as a, a tool for advocacy. And then I have had the privilege of being asked by a couple particular sets of parents to mentor their kids and sitting with them and hearing their stories and being able to kind of reckon with them has been really cool to develop this identity that we wouldn't have otherwise. And being able to say that statement of, oh yeah, I do that too, or I did that too, has been really powerful. And then I do also consult with adoptive parents or people who are thinking about it. But I always kind of do that with like a arm's length and that if you're sure that's what you really want to do with me, I'm not going to not ask you the hard questions. And so it doesn't always turn into a business exchange, but sometimes. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that is kind of where I lend myself. And then I spend some of my days with my kids. So I'm all over the place. With all the things that you're involved in both, I mean, just as a mom, but more, more specifically with all of the things that you do in the adoptee spaces, whether it's the photography or the mentoring or the consulting, I would imagine that those spaces are so heavily reliant on healthy and firm boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think as an adoptee, it's kind of hard sometimes to navigate that space and those spaces and to figure out personal boundaries and maintain them. How do you approach that? Yeah, I particularly am still learning, I would say. I think I've had to do a lot of internal work around my own inner child and be able to kind of rewrite the script, right? There was a season in which I didn't realize just how agitated I was in all the relationships because predominantly the relationships were between adoptive parents and I. And I thought I saw myself peer to peer, but a lot of times it's not peer to peer because of my lived experience. And so I've had, I don't like, I don't want to monetize on my friends, right? But I think there became this particular pivot. And that my friends have been able to meet me in it and understand that my time is, is valuable and that there is an emotional exhaustion that comes from maintaining those relationships. And so there have yeah. been certain ones that have stayed and there have been certain ones that have not. And then there are certain ones that understand that my time and, you know, they support me in a business. They see themselves also as a client, not just mm-hmm. as a friend when it comes to consulting me about their kids and different things. And there's a lot of other adoptees out there too that I am quick to refer people to because I'm one person and it doesn't have to be me. I've had to have firm boundaries with adoptive parents, but I've also had to have firm boundaries too in terms of like how much we allow in our home in terms Mm. of like other foster kids or just more stories. I think it's been very clear that respite care is a great spot for our family because we know that these kids are long-term being taken care of by other people because I think our home is at capacity when it comes to all the different nuances and stories that are <laughs> continuing to grow every year. So yeah, I, I definitely think that there had to be a stopper there as well. So yeah. I'm so thankful to have met you, Brandy. It's been a great conversation. 
And I think one takeaway that I'm received from our conversations together is just this hope for the next generation. You know, we talked about that we all grew up in a smaller town. And, you know, my experience is that I didn't really have anyone else that I could talk to about really deep, complex challenges and um, having people like you in this world to break that cycle and, and really have someone to talk to you about a lot of these things is really encouraging and brings a lot of hope for you know, everyone else in the, in, the, in the next generation. And I'm sure your family and all your kids are going to be so thankful to have really solid home and, and really solid uh, parents to grow up in a safe space like that. So Brandy, it's been so great to have you. And this season, we've been focusing a lot on identity, specifically identity as whole people and not just as adoptees or just as Korean Americans. And you talk about identity in terms of making sure that your kids can live their full identities. How do you identify yourself? What parts of your identity are the most important? I'm a human that is trying her best to raise other good humans. And I think at the end of the day, the complexity in which makes me human is what makes my life so beautiful. In that there is nuance and grief and beauty and joy that all lie within this woven thing that I call my life. I would identify as a spiritual person that knows that I need something outside of myself to make all of that happen. So yeah, there's parts of me that I may never have answered that feel very mystical and sometimes hard to swallow. But I think there's a part of that unknowing that creates so much more richness in my knowing, right? And so I am learning to be a Korean American every day as I walk out my door, as I go to the grocery store, and as I raise these kids that did not come to be Korean American the way that I did or that are not Korean American at all. And so I just, I think that there is this there's this push and this pull, and I just identify as somebody who's sitting right smack dab in the middle. Well, Brandy, um, again, we love having you on, and I hope you can make it to Korea. Are you going to try to reschedule a trip? Yes, I am. As soon as I can not have to be quarantined for two weeks in a hotel. <laughs> yes, we've been getting a lot of that. Uh, we've had several guests that have that been, was trying to go recently, and then pandemic happened yeah i really want to go so do you have anything on your um uh, uh, like a bucket list or are you going to just kind of go and, and see what happens i mean i will i will search or re try to connect with my biological family um even though they have been resistant thus far but i will try again and then i obviously want to go to Jeju-do, which is where i was born um, and probably spend a little time in Seoul, but I feel like Jeju-do will probably be the predominant part of my trip. So, yeah. Do you want to make it a family trip or do you want to go solo? I think I want to go by myself at first or just with my husband. And then I think we'll bring the kids eventually. Um, my son is dying to go. He's a foodie, so he just wants to eat all of the raw fish. <laughs> All the crabs and all the mussels or whatever is there. You know, like, he's all about it all. And we do cook Korean at home. But, I mean, my Korean's probably not their Korean. So, he's a lot of fun. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you guys for having me. And for any of the listeners out there, 
to just encourage you to reach out to other Korean adoptees. I think that there has a particular connection that I felt like I know if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that these two are a dynamic duo and they create such a beautiful space for people to feel safe to be themselves. But that there is a particular sacred space that we can walk on with other Korean adoptees that I don't think we get with everyone else. So I'm just so thankful for this time that I got to spend with you guys and kind of walk that ground with you and get to know you both. So I hope others choose to do that too. Aw, thank you so much. We're glad to have yes. you. Yeah, yes. thank you. Thanks for making the time and so fun. It was great. And also thanks for staying up late with us. You're, you're two hours ahead of us. So it's, I know it's like close to like bedtime for I mean, I'm not an old lady. It's 9.30. I might be. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much. And we'll be in touch. Follow Brandy on Instagram at Brandy underscore Eversol. You can also visit her website at www.brandyeversol.com. As always, follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Uh, check out our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week, and we will catch up with you all on our next episode. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.